Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined again by Professor Jeffrey Rubenstein. Many of you have emailed us and written to us, asking us to get him back on. I believe he was on episode 9, and he had a very, very interesting shiur about Agadan Midrash. But we didn't give it actual examples, it's kind of touched on certain ideas, and we decided that we should probably have an episode or two or three getting into the nitty-gritty of some of these agadot. And we decided that one of the parts that we should focus on from his book, Talmudic Stories, was the character of Acher, Elisha ben Abuya. So we're going to be doing a three-part series, something we haven't done before, just on this character, the different versions of the story, um, which appear in the Tosefta, the Talmud Yerushalmi and the Talmud Bavli, and this podcast was also recorded over the span of a year, all three episodes, we had to spread it out, so you might hear some references that were, you know, talking about personal anecdotes that may seem a little out of place, but I'm sure if you understand it in that context, you will be prepared for that, and also I want to say that this episode is dedicated to the, the neshama of Mayor Ben Moshe, Alava Shalom. Abdul Rahim Ilyan, the late father of our dear friend Rod Ilyan. So, without further ado, Professor Rubenstein. Thank you, Professor Rubenstein, for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. This is the first time, actually, that Bensi and I are filming separately. He is in his hotel room traveling and we just didn't want to miss this opportunity to speak to you again. We've gotten such great feedback. Um, Bensi uh, can you know, tell you more about our feedback from the first episode. So, Bensi, why don't you address uh, the professor? So we got tremendous feedback and people loved everything that we were saying about Agadah. The only thing that I felt was missing and and that people might have felt was missing is to actually go through it in detail inside and see it. Whereas our first podcast was more general, uh, this podcast, which is really like the first podcast that we did with you, it's really to get to this point where we actually take the ideas that we generalized in the first podcast and bring it into you know, fruition now and to really go through uh, an Agadah, the proper way, the structure, to analyze it, to break it down, to, you know, everything that the professor will be doing for us today. And we're really appreciative of it because this is going to be fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm delighted to be on the uh, the podcast or YouTube uh, again. Um, so, yeah, we, we will be dealing with the Agadah of Alicia Benabuyar. That was what uh, Ben and Benji asked me to discuss, which I've written about in my book, uh, Talmudic Stories and, and elsewhere. And of course, Alicia Benabuya and the story of Alicia Benabuya is one of the most interesting, one of the most problematic in some ways, one of the most popular uh, stories about the rabbis, at least in, in modern times. It's also a very challenging one to start with because it's complicated, it's long, and it's got various different and contradictory tendencies within it. But it's always good to start high and we can always do other uh, podcasts about more straightforward or simple uh, stories. I got dope. So Elijah Mbuya, as I mentioned, and I'm sure everybody knows, has become increasingly uh, you know, very, very popular today 
And part of this is due to Milton Steinberg's As a Driven Leaf, which is a modern reconstruction or retelling, a full-length book of Alicia Benabouya and his life. I mean, it's fictional, but based on the Talmudic stories, but many people have, have read this book and enjoyed it and, and developed a big interest in Alicia. Actually, Alicia Benabouya became a topic of great interest since the Jewish Enlightenment, when I think many of the, um, you know, the, the Maskilim, the, the Jews who were adopting modern Western ways and getting a secular education and so on, saw themselves connected to Alicia in certain ways, a little bit alienated from rabbinic tradition, a little bit outside of rabbinic tradition, maybe one foot in rabbinic tradition and one foot outside. And many of them wrote about Alicia and kind of interpreted him, you know, in light of their experience, which is kind of what Milton Steinberg did too. So Alicia has been, you know, thought about and discussed, and there are many, many theories about what actually happened and who he was and, you know, how he became Acher, right? The other, this horrible apostate or heretic, so much so that the rabbis couldn't even say his name. Uh, so this is a very, very long and complicated um, chapter in Jewish literature and Jewish tradition, Talmudic tradition. But what we're going to do today is start with the beginning. That is the earliest sources about Elisha ben Abuya. And these sources appear in the Mishnah and the Tosefta. That is in the text we call Tanaitic from the period of the Tanaim. That is up to about 200 CE when the Mishnah was edited maybe the Tosefta a little later, but uh, these are before the Talmud. And then, so there's a uh, there's some sources that talk about Elisha in the Mishnah, well, in the Tosefta related to the Mishnah. And these sources begin interpreted both in the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, and in the Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, to start the process of the stories about Elisha that become more fully developed there. Um, so, so we'll look at those today, and then we'll have to leave to another podcast, you know, another time, the full story in the Yerushalmi and in the Bavli, because these are very highly developed and long stories. So it's very rich material. But first, okay, in order to even understand these early traditions about Elisha ben Abuya, uh, we have to understand a form of mysticism that was practiced in rabbinic times, in Talmudic times, before the Middle Ages, when a new form of mysticism, Kabbalah, or where we have in the Zohar, kind of took over and supplanted or superseded these earlier forms of mysticism. So I don't know if you've had on your podcast other scholars talking about mysticism in the Zohar Absolutely. and Kabbalah. Very Maybe much not. Very much so, and we are going to have a lot more. So we, our, our audience <laughs> by now is familiar with okay. the original mysticism, which is the Maaseh Merkaba mysticism Merkava mysticism okay good yeah you, you don't have to really you can you can maybe give a brief about it but you know it's part of your presentation yeah, so, I, I, so i'll give a, just a little bit about it because the, the as you mentioned right before kabbalah there was an earlier kind of jewish mysticism known as Merkava mysticism or heichalot mysticism so Merkava refers to the chariot uh and this chariot it, it comes to us or we 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 hear about it first in the vision of Yechezkel, of the prophet Ezekiel. In chapters 1 through 3, Yechezkel has this unbelievable vision where the skies open and God riding his chariot, his chariot throne, appears to Yechezkel. 
And he describes this throne or tries to describe it. It's a little hard to figure out exactly what he's talking about, but is this radiant and there's colors and there's fire. There's a figure of a human and he's on a chariot that is perched on angels or some kind of beings with heads. It's not clear if it's four different beings on each side or four beings total, heads of a, a human, a, an eagle, a ox, and uh, a lion. These are the four kingly beasts, you know, the king of the birds, so the, the king of the birds, the king of the beasts, and the king of the wild animals. So all of these uh, symbolize really kingship. So the, the, the vision of Yechezkel was understood to be um, how, you know, God existed up in heaven. That is, usually God was up in the heavenly temple, but he came down and appeared to Yechezkel on his throne. And this throne that Yechezkel saw was in this heavenly temple, which was known as the Heichal. So that's why it's simply called Heichalot. There were, it was not just one temple. Sometimes they were understood to be seven temples or seven entrances or chambers, really, within one another, uh, where God on his throne was on the innermost one. And the goal of the mystic was to have this visionary experience of God. So with some sort of out-of-body out of experience, the soul could leave the body, go up to heaven in some way, go through these hechalot to the innermost chamber, and there get the vision of God on his throne. I mean, I, so I brought a little, uh, I found some pictures of this. Um, you know, you can find these on on, on Google images just because it's sometimes hard to, um, you know, understand exactly what this entails. Um, and for those who are listening on the audio version, I recommend switching over to the YouTube uh, to view the actual slideshow that Professor is going to be sharing with us right now. Yeah. So here's just a couple of pictures of, you know, this was one from the, the Renaissance uh, painter Raphael in 1518 uh, of that's supposed to be God, you know, on this on this throne, which is carried by beasts. That's the Merkava. You know, there's another one who understood the vision in slightly different terms, where again, you could see angels um, drawing this throne and there's uh, God in a kind of a human form there. You know, still another vision like of this. Again, there's some angelic beings there. This one's a little more modern, uh, obviously, but, you know, has, a, I think I like, I like the colors. He describes colors and radiance. Um, and I couldn't find really any images of Hechalot except for this book. This is on the cover of a book about prayer and about Hechalot mysticism. But there, I think you get a sense of there are chambers within change, chambers. That's kind of a heavenly temple. And in, in the innermost temple is uh, is that Merkava, is the throne. So the goal of the mystic is to go and get this vision. And, you know, what he would accomplish there is, first of all, just this amazing, you know, consummately unbelievable vi vision of God on his throne. You know, what could be a greater spiritual experience than that? But also, you know, you could, the mystic was able to ask God for things. You know, you and I, we're down here on earth, we're sitting in shul, we're praying. You know, maybe God hears our prayers, maybe not. But if you're right before that throne, up in the heavenly temple, I mean, there's a very good chance God is going to answer you. So it wasn't just the sense that you wanted this incredible vision. It was that you also had this ability to actually ask for something, you know, end the suffering of the Jewish people or, or something like that. Um, now, the part of this 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 Merkava mysticism also included many, many angels, because there were angels who 
And some of the texts guard these uh, different chambers and kind of prevent unworthy people of getting access to the Merkava or the throne room. So there, you required a whole lot of knowledge, esoteric knowledge, you know, mystical knowledge of the names of angels or what you had to say or what you couldn't say to get through these angelic guards that were sometimes hostile to human beings. This is also a kind of motif that runs through Hechelot mysticism. And we find this actually very common in, in rabbinic sources in a sort of different way, but there's a sort of competition between angels and humans as to who's better and who God loves more. And the angels can even be sometimes hostile to humans, you know, a little less so in the Talmud, but a little more so in the Hechelot mysticism. So there were dangers involved in this quest, dangers in terms of the angels, you know, punishing you, even killing you. And also there were, like with, with many kinds of mysticism or esoteric knowledge, there was considered like dangers to the person who was trying to learn this. If you weren't sufficiently grounded in your faith and if you didn't know, you know, rabbinic tradition sufficiently, you might come to the wrong conclusions and you might think some heretical kind of thoughts. You know, we know this from the Zohar and mysticism, Kabbalah, later Kabbalah, you know, you shouldn't engage in this until you're 40, until you mature, or until you're a rabbi or something like that. So, you know, this was part of this esoteric tradition that the rabbis were kind of worried about that shouldn't be accessible to everybody. So this is this is kind of the background, because I think this is, you know, the way the rabbis in the earliest sources, the Tanaitic sources, understood what had happened to Elisha. Although what we're going to see is that there's a long development within rabbinic tradition itself, within the Talmud itself, where later Talmudic sources or later Talmudic rabbis perhaps didn't even understand these earlier sources, and they themselves were trying to make sense of, you know, what the real story of Elisha was and really interpreted in different ways. Um, so with that kind of background, I think uh, we should we should turn to the sources themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to share my screen again, and we're going to go to the sources. We're going to start with the Mishnah, which is really the basis for the Tosefta, where we get our first mention of Alicia. Okay. All right. You guys see that? Does that look good? Perfect. Okay. Um, I got to get to the next slide. Okay. All right. So, um, so here we have the Mishnah, and you can see that this is Mishnah Chagiga 2.1, and uh, this Mishnah deals with these esoteric or dangerous subjects uh, that the rabbis thought should not be taught in public and maybe should be limited, you know, to those who were at a higher spiritual level. So you can see it starts out, I'll just read in the English for those of you who want to follow in the Hebrew or look at it occasionally. You know, one may not expound the topic of forbidden sexual relations before three or more individuals. We won't get into exactly why for now. Um, but you can see this is something that has, you know, shouldn't be publicized or done in public, a limit of three, nor the act of creation between two or more individuals. So how God created the world, again, was, was considered, you know, this kind of, very, very complicated theological topic that shouldn't really be taught to, you know, just anybody or, or in a public setting because it raised all sorts of questions. And then we get, nor may one expound by oneself the divine chariot, the Merkava. 
unless he is wise and understands most matters on his own. Okay? So this talks actually about expounding the divine chariot, meaning studying the portion of the Bible that talks about the chariot, but uh, it, it doesn't talk actually about a kind of mystical experience itself, unless you know learning about it is itself by definition mystical. Um, but nevertheless, you can see the rabbis in this Mishnah are very cautious about this kind of knowledge being disseminated. Um, one, you know, it shouldn't even be taught to another person, but one great rabbi or one rabbi is able to do this if he's able to understand it himself. So there's something considered, you can see those kind of dangers about looking into this mystical subject that the rabbis were very cautious about, you know, people doing by themselves. They didn't even want to teach it, you know, but they thought if you were sufficiently wise, you could kind of figure it out yourself, then that was okay. So this is this is all we get in the Mishnah. And you can see Elisha ben Abuya is not even mentioned, nor is any sage. But but in the Tosefta, and just to remind everybody, we all know what the Tosefta was, is, right? The Tosefta is the supplement to the Mishnah, which is structured along the same lines as the Mishnah. So for every tractate of Mishnah, almost, you have a tractate of Tosefta. And a lot of this material was material that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, who edited the Mishnah, decided to leave out. For whatever reason, he thought it wasn't sufficiently authoritative or important, or it just didn't have room. But much of it was collected in this parallel text, the Tosefta, you know, maybe edited just a bit a, a little later, but it has the same sages as appeared in the Mishnah. So we consider it Tanaitic from that same pre-Tamiric time up to about 200 CE when the Mishnah was edited. So in the Tosefta, you can see this is Tosefta Chagiga. So it's the parallel tractate that right? goes along with the Mishnah. We get a slightly different version of this mystical enterprise, this Merkava or Hechalot mysticism. So it starts out, four entered the orchard, four entered the pardes, the word for orchard is pardes. Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, Acher, the other, that is Elisha, and Rabbi Akiva. Now, this is clearly a parable because when you talk about esoteric subjects that you don't want everybody, everybody to understand, and we just saw in the Mishnah, they didn't really want to talk about it. You talk about it in parables, but of course, that makes it very difficult for the audience if you're not, if you don't have any kind of direct, you know, uh, tradition from the person who made the parables to understand what they're talking about. So we're not even clear exactly what this means. But the orchard seems to be a, you know, a parable for mystical speculation, for this kind of Merkava or Hechelot mysticism. So for enter the orchard seems to be these four rabbis engaged in this Merkava activity or this Hechelot activity. They tried to get to that chariot, to the throne up in heaven and get through those angels and through those chambers and get there. But as we see in the next section, it didn't go so well, at least not for everyone. One gazed and died. One gazed and was harmed. <clears throat> one gazed and cut the shoots. And one went up in peace and went down in peace. Um, so you can see for, for the first two of them, Ben Azai and Ben Zoma, the Mishnah will go on to tell us, or this Tosefta, sorry, will go on and tell us a little bit 
you know, what happened to Benzama, Benaza and Benzoma. I skipped over it here just because, um, you know, that's not our main focus. But, you know, things went bad for them. One died, one was harmed. And then one gazed and cut the shoots. And the Tosefta tells us Alicia, Alicia gazed and cut the shoots. That was Alicia Benabuya. And then one went up in peace and went down in peace. That's Rebbe Akiva. And again, the Tosefta goes on to tell us about a little bit more about Rebbe Akiva. Now, what does this all mean is we're not totally sure. <laughs> um, but you can see a little bit, from, even from section B there, where it says one gaze. So, so what is the gaze? The, the gaze seems to be this attempt to get a vision of God on the Merkava. This was, as some people call it, a visionary type of, of mysticism, you know, seeing the Merkava, seeing God on his throne. So for the three of them, it, it seems like what this parable is talking about is indeed this kind of Merkava mysticism where they tried to get up and, and, and see the throne. And maybe at least the two of them who were harmed, one died and was harmed, you know, were struck down by these angels there. What does it mean to gaze and cut the shoots? Okay, we'll talk about that in a second. And then again, Rebbe Kiba went up in peace and went down in peace. So there it doesn't mention gaze, but it mentions going up and down. And that would be consistent with Merkava mysticism. He went up through the Hechalot to the Merkava, the throne itself, and then he came back down and he came out in peace. You know, Rabbi Akiva was successful. But we can see it was very, very dangerous. And this was, at least in the rabbi's eyes, this was one of the reasons they wanted to limit its audience and not even really tell us about what is going on. Now, cutting the shoots is, is very unclear, but of course, this is part of the parable <laughs> that we don't fully understand. It seems that it's what Alicia did, again, that, you know, the best guess of scholars, simply based on this context, is if you think about an orchard and cutting down shoots, cutting down plants, perhaps what, what the Tosefta means is that this, this orchard, the orchard you know, it was God's orchard or it was a king's orchard. You know, this is the allegory. Orchard was, a pardes was, the special gardens or orchard of a Persian king. I mean, that's where the, the word comes to us from. And these were his private area. You know, it's where the king relaxed or where the king well went. It wasn't for everybody. And it was surrounded by plants or trees or a fence or something like that to keep it private. So it's possible what Alicia did, his sin in this earliest source, was he cut down those plants that made the, the orchard private, that made this mystical vision private, right? If God is the king and the orchard is somehow his realm up there or how to get access to it, Alicia tried, in other words, to open it up to other people. He cut down the shoots protecting or enclosing this orchard. And that's what he did was wrong. But again, exactly what that means, we don't know. It's, you know, he tried to publicize it. He tried to teach it to other people. He tried to teach it to people who were unworthy. He talked about it. Okay. Not 100% not clear. And, and I keep emphasizing that because as we'll see, the rabbis of the Talmud didn't really understand this any better than we did. And they did their best to make sense of it. But the way they made sense of it, you know, might not be exactly what it meant in its original tradition, in this tradition, in the Tosefta. 
you know, because it is told in a kind of parable. Now we do get one other piece of information about Elisha, and this is that the Tosefta adds a biblical verse. So it's in section D, you can see it says, scripture says about him, let not, not your mouth lead your flesh to sin, and do not say before the malach. Now we know the malach can either be an angel or a messenger. Uh, so I guess we can take it for angel for now. Do not say before the angel that it was an error, else God may be angered by your talk and destroy the work of your hands. So the Tosefta is saying is this verse somehow captures what Elisha did wrong. But the problem is this verse is very opaque. I mean, do you all guys understand this verse? You know, what does this mean? How does your mouth lead your flesh to sin? And don't say that before the malach that it's an error or God may be angered. There's a little tension here between starting with the malach and then shifting to, you know, to God. Um, in the Hebrew, and then so what is this angel doing, you know, and what is it that causes God to be angry? What is destroying the work of the hands? So this verse, I mean, there, there definitely seems to be something done that's wrong, but it doesn't really help us that much understand what Elisha did wrong or what the Tosefta thinks he did wrong because it's such a difficult verse. Um, the shot of this verse, if you look at biblical commentators, is probably about something about vows. That is not taking a vow and then violating it. So how does your mouth lead your flesh to sin? You you take a vow, you know, I'm never going to eat meat again. And then if you eat meat, you've violated your vow. So you've sinned. Maybe that's your flesh is sinning in some way. And, and, and you shouldn't then at that point, you can't plead to the angel that you made this vow in error because you've taken God's name in this vow and God will be angry and punish you. I mean, that's probably sort of close to the pshat, but clearly that's not what the Tosefta means here in this context. But we don't really know what the Tosefta means, except you can see a little bit about this malach, this angel, which, and, and, and this angel and, and God being angry and making some sort of anger, uh, making some sort of error, you know, that does sound like part of the dangers that are warned about in these Hechelot, in these Merkava texts, that the angels might punish you, you might get hurt by angels, you know, you might get destroyed. But again, it's very, very, very inscrutable. And, you know, so what, what I want us to understand just before we go on is that when the Talmudic sages in the Yerushalmi and in the Bavli came to try to make sense of this tradition, and understand what happened to Elisha, I think they were just as puzzled as it, uh, but as we are today. In other words, they did not have some sort of direct oral tradition about what actually happened to Elisha. And they were left like we are to try to make sense of the Tosefta. You know, they knew that kind of background. They knew a little bit about Merkava mysticism, Hechalot mysticism, at least some of the rabbis, but exactly what the Tosefta is talking about, they didn't know. Okay, so, you know, the point is that, 
you know, there's a sort of sense, I think, in the popular imagination and people who have sometimes read Milton Steinberg and read other books about Alicia is like, we know exactly what happened to Alicia. And, um, you know, we have these biographical traditions about him. But in the earlier sources, this is all we have. And the biographical traditions we're going to get to now are really just attempts to make sense of this early tradition. Hey, that makes sense? Okay, it'll make a little more sense as, as we get to it, all right? A lot of sense. Huh? A lot of sense, okay. All right, so let's move then to the Yerushalmi and see what the Yerushalmi says, okay? So the Yerushalmi, as we know, is a, you know, is a commentary to the Mishnah, and it follows the same order and structure as the Mishnah. So for Mishnah Tractate Chagiga, we have Yerushalmi Tractate Chagiga, and many times in the Yerushalmi, the Tosefta, which also follows the Mishnah, is quoted in the Yerushalmi. So here in Yerushalmi Chagiga, in the same chapter, um, we get uh, the quotation of the Tosefta, and then we get the Yerushalmi's attempt to understand it, okay? So you can see what I put in yellow at the top layer there, the top row, Acher gazed and, and cut the shoots. That's just this quote from Tosefta Chagiga, right? Um, well, we have in the in the Tosefta, Alicia gazed and cut the shoots, but it, first, it starts out with four entered the orchard talking about Alicia and Acher. There's actually some variation in the manuscripts of the Tosefta about using the term Acher and Alicia, but clearly they're they're used interchangeable there. So the Tosefta says Acher, you know, gazed and cuts the shoots, basically quoting the Tosefta. <clears throat> and now the Urshami tells us, you know, ostensibly what seems to be some other traditions about Alicia, but I'm going to claim they're simply attempts to understand the Tosefta. They're not really independent of it. So what do we have? The Yerushalmi says, who is Acher? Alicia ben Abuya, who would kill the young students of Torah. Now pause for a second, audience, and tell me, how is the Yerushalmi understanding the Tosefta? How is one, you know, this first section in the Yerushalmi, understanding that first yellow row, lower lower A, lowercase a in the Tosefta. Cut the shoots, the shoots being ah. young students of Torah, cutting the shoots would be essentially killing the shoots. Exactly. So, you know, what, what is so heinous that Acher did, that Alicia did, that, you know, the rabbis couldn't even mention his name and they had to call it the other? Well, obviously, it's not cutting, you know, real plants. What's wrong with that? And, you know, the cutting the shoots is clearly a, a parable. So how do we decode the parable? So as you very astutely realized, cutting is understood as killing. And shoots, young plants, young growth, is understood as killing young students of Torah. So, you know, uh, in some of the the stories, the retellings of the Talmudic Christian about Elisha, you know, he does these terrible things, but this is really just the Yerushalmi attempting to understand the Tosefta. My and really problem... just that line of Tosefta. Oh, so is it the correct understanding? Some... I don't know. I don't think so. I think the correct understanding is probably more in terms of some sort of mystical enterprise, but this is how the Yerushalmi takes it. Yeah. So, uh, and I think you're saying that because it's hard to understand in the context of the pardes what how killing young Torah students has anything to do with, you know, gazing and having that experience 
leading how do they how do they connect i'm not so sure and I exactly think that's kind of i what mean trying to say. if it's, the pardes is referring to some sort of merkava or hechalot mystical enterprise you know everything we understand about what that involved i mean had nothing to do with other people or killing people or young correct. students you yeah. know it had to do with out-of-body experience of your soul you know up into these heavenly realms so it's the Yerushalmi it seems to me either it kind of understood but it didn't want us to didn't want us to understand that is it didn't want its audience to know anything about that mystical background because the Yerushalmi was trying to move away from it or suppress it essentially or the scholars of the Yerushalmi just didn't even understand it I mean that's possible too but they give us this interpretation. And then you can see in, in the next row, letter, capital letter B, they said he would kill every student whom he saw distinguish himself in Torah. So that's very similar to the previous row. And it doesn't add much, but it does add every student whom he saw. Why is it important to say Every student whom he saw. Because it gives a gates. connection. It gives a connection back to the gates. Exactly. So the, the Tosefta says he gazed and cut the shoots. So the Yerushalmi, I think, is making two sort of similar tries to interpret that. The first basically just interprets cut the shoots. He would kill the young students of Torah. And the second says he saw these young students distinguish themselves. I guess shoots being a you know a, a good plant, and therefore a good student of Torah. And then he would kill them, cut them down. So it's a second attempt to understand the Tosefta to take into more data that there's a gaze and cut the shoots. Okay, so this is these two are different versions of Yerushalmi interpretation number one or Yerushalmi story number one. Now Yerushalmi goes on to give what it presents as an addition, like he did something else, but is really another kind of interpretation of the Tosefta. So let's look at number two there. Not only that, but he would go to the meeting place, <clears throat> the school or the Beit Midrash. The, the Yerushalmi calls this a, a Beit Vada or Bey Vada, what the Babli sometimes calls a Beit Midrash. So he would go to this meeting place. He would go to the school and see children in front of their rabbi, uh, of their teacher. And he would say, what are these sitting and doing here. This one's profession is a builder. This one's profession is a carpenter. This one's profession is a hunter. That one's profession is a tailor. In other words, they shouldn't be learning Torah. They should be engaging in these kind of careers, you know, preparing for these kind of careers. When they heard this, they would leave him and go away. Now, I think this also goes back to the Tosefta, that line up above that we saw, Acher gazed and cut the shoots, you can see, first of all, is that he would go to the meeting house and see children. So again, we have the seeing, that's interpreting Acher gazed. And the shoots, again, are children. But in this version, how is cut the shoots, cut being understood? It's not that he would kill the students, but he would cut them off, right? Cut them off from Torah or cut them off from tradition. So cut the shoots in two is he would 
uh -huh. cut off the children from learning Torah. I'm wondering if the fact that he's saying something would go with the last part. Exactly. Oh my God, Benji, you are you are uh, you know the model student. You already are catching on. <laughs> so at this with this story, the uh, the Yerushalmi begins to take into account the other datum that it has from the Tosefta, which is the verse, and that's why it quotes the verse right here and the other yellow. About him, scripture says, let, let not your mouth lead you into sin. So how does the Yerushalmi understand this verse in relation to Elisha? His mouth led him into sin by convincing these young students to abandon their Torah. And that was, that was, a, uh, that was something that he said. And it was clearly very, very sinful. So that's why the Yerushalmi, you know, sort of splits up the Tosefta like it did. It quotes the first line of it. Then it gives us story one. It then gives us story two. And then it gets to the second part of the Tosefta to tell us that story two has now begun to incorporate both gazing and cutting the shoots and the mouth leading into sin. So this kind of weird scenario, again, comes from an interpretation of the Tosefta, you know, a different one. The Yerushalmi presents these as cumulative. You know, he did number one. Not only that, he also did number two. But again, I think we can understand these as two kind of independent attempts to understand the Tosefta. Okay, everybody with me so far? Is that, that yes, clear? absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Okay, now the Yerushalmi continues. I couldn't fit it all in one slide, but you can see it's this is the continuation, just starting again with that verse that we just read. And the Yerushalmi continues, for he destroys the works of that man. This is an interpretation of the last few words of the Tosefta. You see the verse ends, sorry, the, the verse quoted in the Tosefta, God may be angered by your talk and destroy the work of your hands. So the Yerushalmi says he destroyed the work of his, uh, the work, he destroyed the works of that man. Or the works of the hands of that man, I should have translated it. Ma'ase yadav In other words, he destroyed his own works of his hands. That man, the the Talmud often talks about a person in the third person, you know, in the uh, when it means the first person. So in other words, he destroyed his own works. Now, how did Elisha ben Abuya destroy his own works or the work of his hands? Um, work of your hands is an idiom. It appears pretty often in the Torah and very often in rabbinic literature following its presence in the Torah and the rest of the Tanakh. And it can mean different things. One thing it can mean is children, actually. The works of our hands are our children. I mean, that's the that's what we make as, as you know, as adults and as parents. So it's possible it refers that it, the Yerushalmi is saying here, you know, trying to understand the verse in terms of that scenario that he destroyed these children cut them off from Torah. But uh, another you, another meaning of works uh, of one's hands is mitzvot. They, the commandments, the good deeds that we do are the work of our hands. You know, so the, at least that's the way the rabbis often understand when the Bible talks about So in other words, it seems like the Yerushalmi is understanding this part of the verse saying that Elisha 
by this heinous act, by getting all these students to leave Torah, abandon Torah, you know, he destroyed the mitzvot that were to his credit. You know, he lost the merit of those mitzvot. Or, you know, again, maybe it's a double entendre. It also means he destroyed the children or cut the children off from Torah. That is the work of his hands or our hands. You know, the work of people's hands is their children. So, you know, it's a little bit of an awkward attempt. But I think, again, the Yerushalmi is doing its best to understand why the Tosefta quotes this verse in relation to Elisha and what that might mean. But the Yerushalmi doesn't quite, <laughs> at least yet, you know, get, deal with the rest of the verse. I mean, there's a, you know, there, there's an angel or a malach that it was an error and God being angered by your talk. I mean, we don't quite see that interpreted yet. But the Yerushalmi could be doing the best that it could, you know. Maybe not. Maybe it's not that every part of the verse is relevant. So that that's all part of story two, right? So we've got two attempts to understand um, Alicia. One just taking into account the the phrase "dazed and cut the shoots," and one that is the second one taking into account that phrase as well as two parts of the verse, right? The mouth leading him into sin and destroying the work of his hands. But now we get a third story in the Yerushalmi. This is a little more, um, a little more lengthy, right? So it says, also, when there was a persecution, they made them, they made the Jews carry burdens. But the Jews arranged to have two people carry one burden on account of the rule that two who perform one labor on the Sabbath are not culpable. All right, so again, the Yerushalmi is imagining a, a situation where someone is persecuting the Jews. Let's say it's the Romans. I mean, we don't know because the Yerushalmi doesn't tell us. And they're forcing Jews to violate Shabbat. They're forcing Jews to carry things on Shabbat. As we know, you're not allowed to carry from a private domain to a public domain or a public domain to a private domain or four cubits in a public domain. But the Jews are trying to outsmart these persecutors by having two people carry their load, whatever they're supposed to carry. Because if two people carry something, they don't violate Shabbat, at least not according to Deoraita law, the law of the Torah. Right? To do that, you have to carry something. You have to perform a Shabbat labor individually, you know, by yourself. And then what happened? Elisha said, make them carry individually. So they, the persecutors, went and made the Jews carry individually. So he's he's almost like he's he's basically uh, turning his back on his people, and he's he's going to the to the powers that be and saying, "Oh, if you really want to make them, you know, if you, if you really want to get at them, this is what you have to do: make them carry it individually." So it's kind of like a, he's he's a uh, traitor. Yes, exactly. I mean, the Yerushalmi yeah. is portraying him. Like you say, as a traitor, as someone who's presumably apostatized, you know, renounced his religion, certainly renounced his people, gone over to be some advisor for the Romans, presumably, I mean, or the, some persecutors, and telling them really how to, you know, make the Jews violate their, their own laws. You know, it's a terrible, terrible thing. So the story goes on. Let's, we'll finish the story, then we'll talk, come back to talk about it. But they arranged to set the burdens down in a Carmelite in order that they not carry out from a private domain to a public domain. So 
if you know Shabbat law, you know a Carmelite is a kind of intermediate domain. It's neither public nor fully private. It's like the, a courtyard. You know. um, and again, you don't violate Shabbat law deoraita, at least according to the Torah, if you carry from a private domain to a Carmelite or a Carmelite to a private or public domain. It's only from a private domain to a public domain or four cubits in a public domain. So again, the Jews were trying to outsmart the persecutors or at least avoid the worst kinds of religious violations. Because after all, with the Romans, with the persecutors knew, know about this you know, sort of detailed law about Shabbat boundaries and, and domains and so on. But then what happened? He said, Alicia said, make them carry flasks. So flasks are made out of glass. I mean, the Romans had kinds of glass or something very brittle. And they went and carried flasks. And the trouble with the flask is it probably couldn't be set down in a Carmelite. So in other words, again, Alicia told the Romans how to get the Jews to violate Shabbat by, you know, in the, in the most extreme way by um, by making this loophole impossible. They, they couldn't set down flasks because the flasks would break. So they had to carry them from the private to the public domain. So again, Alicia, you know, is this advisor, this trader, this collaborator, you know, working with the persecutors. Now it's a kind of odd scenario. You must, you know, kind of, we'd, we'd have to think like, you know, um, so where does the Yerushalmi get this? I mean, you know, again, it seems to be making this up, but why does it make up this scenario? How does this interpret the Tosefta or the verse? Well, again, it's kind of the, the mouth eating to sin. Yeah. Right? How does a the mouth, mouth the mouth yeah. lead to sin by telling them to carry the flasks? Yeah. Exactly. So the mouth leads to sin, the map Alicia's mouth providing counsel to the persecutors leads the other Jews to sin they have to violate Shabbat and it leads him to sin of course by you know forcing others to violate Shabbat so it lives up to that part of the verse and again destroy the work of your hands I think again this is uh, can be understood in terms of destroying mitzvot that is forcing the Jews uh, to, to break mitzvot not observe Shabbat maybe Elisha losing merit for his mitzvot if you know work of your hands can refer to mitzvot but again, there's probably a double meaning here because the flasks would break if they were set down. So again, it could be, um, you know, the destroying the work of your hands or breaking, you know, the work of your hands could be, the Yerushalmi could be trying to understand that in terms of, you know, the, the breaking of the flasks, you know, it could have both meanings. Because um, it's, a, it's a very odd kind of, scenario to to otherwise for the Urshelmi to come up with if it wasn't trying really, I think, to understand how those ver those words would apply. Okay, so the Urshami gives us, you know, three stories, right? I mean, killing the students, not only that, but advising them to leave their studies. And then this collaborating with the persecutors that it presents as he did this and he did this and he did that. But I think it's three attempts to understand the Tosefta. If you look carefully, the first one just interprets the first phrase in the Tosefta, gazed and cut the shoots, right? Killing the students or seeing and killing the students. The second scenario interprets part of both that phrase, gazed and cut the shoots, 
to students abandoning Torah, as well as your mouth leading you to sin because he told them to leave. And I think this third one just interprets the verse. You know, it does not really go back to the Tosefta, gazed and cut the shoots. This third scenario about the Jews carrying burdens is just your mouth leading you to sin and destroying the work of your hands. So your Shalmi is, I, uh, I mean, it's very brilliant here. You know, it's very aesthetically pleasing in a certain sense. It's making three attempts based on the two data that, the, that you have in the Tosefta, gazed and cut the shoots, and then the verse, the first, just the gazed and cut the shoots, the second, both, the third, just the verse, you know, the Yerushalmi saying, I'm, I'm doing my best here, working with the different components I have, and this is what I come up with. It, it's it's almost like in a sense, and I, you know, maybe there's a slight pun here, but it's almost like up until now, I know that it's going to get into Met Metatron now, we're going to get into that, but yeah, it seems like up until now, it's almost like they're demystifying it, or just putting it into a, a uh, what's the word? Uh, it's it's kind of like just putting it putting it into a context which which fits you know for for their audience in a way. Yeah, I mean that's it's funny. Judaism demystified. It's actually yeah, a it's perfect fun. perfect for your title because this could be seen as a kind of demystification or you know was, uh, suppressing whatever mystical element there was in the Tosefta. Yeah. And making it into something else. Yeah, making it something that maybe resonated more with their audience. Um, you know, they had some experience with persecution or they had some experience with, with I don't know, about people killing young students of Torah. I don't know. That would seem that would seem pretty <laughs> extreme. Um, but but I think the, the point I think we should come away with is that the Yerushalmi generates these very, very negative portrayals of Elisha, not because it has biographical information, not because it's got some ancient tradition about what he did, it's but interpretive. It's trying to interpret the Tosefta. And in a way, you can see this is a kind of midrash. So remember, what a midrash, a rabbinic midrash, will interpret a verse in the Torah, and very often not according to what we would call it the pshat, or it'll make sense of it in different ways. And especially the rabbinic kind of retellings of the biblical stories. You know, what happened with Cain and Abel and Cain and Hevel and how they came to, you know, murder each other, or what happened with Abraham on the way to the Akedah. I mean, any of these rabbinic stories about biblical characters, um, these midrashim, you know, interpret what you have in the Bible in these different ways to generate new narratives, to generate new stories. And it's very unusual for rabbinic stories to be generated out of earlier rabbinic traditions as opposed to biblical tradition. But I think this is an example of it here. It's a kind of midrash on a rabbinic source, not on a biblical source. But it, it, but, but it comes to the same thing, you know, telling us a new story about the characters. Okay, so that's the Yerushalmi, but you know what's going to happen in, in, in later Jewish tradition is that people will start thinking, this is what Elisha did. He killed young students of Torah, he collaborated with the Romans, you know, and we get these kind of later traditions about trying to reconstruct what Elisha did, how he came to this. Um, but you know, I think that's a little misguided um, because the Yerushalmi itself is just 
teasing out these scenarios to make sense of the Tosefta. And it's not, it's obviously not saying that he literally killed them, but he's like cutting them off. Well, uh, well, in the in the in the first scenario, he did kill them. In, right. in story one, he would kill students of Torah. Yeah, in the second story, it's kind of walking it back a little bit, but he's yeah. not literally killing the students. He's uh he's just you know becoming a traitor and leading them astray. Yeah, it's a it's a different a different attempt to understand the Tosefta source, less <laughs> kind of less terrible. Yes. Right. So, so meaning they're interpreting. It doesn't. It, it, it's not a matter of literal or not literal here. It's a matter of how are they going to interpret the words yeah. that they're trying to interpret. Yes. How are they going to make sense that, that, that that's what they're doing? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. All right. So let's go to the Bible. Good. We did the Rishami. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You guys with me? Yeah, we're yeah, with, we're with you. you. Okay. So here's the Bavli. So again, the Bavli appears in Trachei Chagiyah of the Bavli. It's also in the section of Talmud that interprets that Mishnah that we saw in the uh, you know, in, in the Mishnah about the Merkava mysticism. And we get a story about, it quotes the Tosefta, you know, Akher gazed and cut the shoots. And then it continues as follows. So what did he see? Right. What did Alicia see? Because what did the Tosefta see? Say he gazed. Right. Now there are some manuscripts of the Talmud that doesn't that don't say what did he see. Some of them actually just says what is this or what is Alicia. But um, and if you open your kind of printed text, the Vilna Shas, it has you know what was this or my he as opposed to my chaza. What was he or what is he as opposed to what he saw? And I think this is the better reading. That is, the Babylonian Talmud is asking here, what does the Tosefta mean when it said Elisha gazed? You know, what did he see? Okay, so now it tells us this story. He saw Metatron. So Metatron is the name of an angel that we know from various sources. Um, he saw Metatron to whom was given permission one hour each day to sit and write the merits of Israel. He said, it is taught that on high there is no standing and no sitting and no jealousy and no rivalry and no back and no weariness. Perhaps heaven forbid there are two divine powers. Immediately they brought out Metatron and struck him with 60 lashes of fire. They said to him, when you saw him, what did uh, why did you not rise before him? Okay, this line I put in angle brackets because it doesn't appear in all manuscripts, so they think the, the better reading has it. So they said to Metatron, when you saw Elisha, why did you not rise before him? He was given permission to burn the merits of Acher. Metatron was. Destroy the merits of Acher. A heavenly voice went out and said to him, return rebellious children except for Acher. All right, so this is, a, you know, again, a very tricky story. Let's try to understand it. What did he see? What did Alicia see? So, so he, saw, he, saw, he saw a heavenly scribe sitting, which you're not supposed to be sitting if you are not God. That's right. So first of all, I think the thing, first thing we should observe is the Bible presents this in more of a mystical way a little more consistent with Heichalot or Merkava mysticism. Because as we said, what, what that kind of mysticism entailed was a, a heavenly journey, an out-of-body experience, up to the heavenly realms where you saw these angels and you got to God's throne. 
So as opposed to the Yerushalmi, the Babli is more consistent with understanding it as a kind of mysticism. So the Babli assumes or is telling us that when he got up to heaven there, he saw this angel who was, you know, his function was, like you said, as a scribe to record the merits, the schuyot, right, of Israel, you know, of the Jews, so that on Yom Kippur, for the nation as a whole, we would have these merits to our credit. But Elisha got confused. He had some other tradition that up on high in heaven, there's no standing or sitting, no jealousy, no rivalry, no back. Back refers to the backs of angels, according to some traditions, you know, the angels have heads on all sides or they're kind of face to face. So you never see a back. <clears throat> There's no weariness. They never tie, tire out. But in, in this tradition that he got from somewhere else, it says there's no sitting. And Metatron is sitting. So Alicia reasons that an angel can't be sitting because on high, no standing, no sitting, no jealousy means not, the angels can't do this. So Metatron must be also divine, must be a divine figure. Perhaps, heaven forbid, they're two divine powers. <clears throat> and, you know, I think the Bobli here is sensitive also to what the rabbis felt was a potential problem with mysticism, with this kind of esoteric inquiry into the heavenly realms, is you might be led astray. You might get some, you know, come to some incorrect conclusion. You might interesting, the interesting, uh, you know, from my, yeah. what I see here is that I've read some um, scholars also saying that this is potentially um, a cautionary tale about uh, Gnosticism or dualism, <clears throat> some type of maybe even Christianity, where he he kind of sees this lesser Yudke Vavke in, in as as some uh, Kabbalists described, and came to a conclusion that there is there are other forces other than God. So yeah, this so I think you're one hundred percent right. I mean that's that's potentially um, in the background. There was this kind of religious movement that, you, as you say, known as Gnosticism, um, which sometimes entailed, I mean, there were various kinds of Gnosticism, but a belief that there was a kind of higher God and a lower God, but there were two divine powers. Like it says here, you know, um, sometimes this is a good God and a bad God. I mean, this kind of dualism is, of course, a good way to understand why this world is evil and why they're suffering. We know in Babylonia, yeah. the Zoroastrians were dualists. So, you know, right. there's a lot of background here, but it could be that kind of, yeah, that kind of Gnosticism or mysticism. And the rabbis are kind of saying, that's the danger. That is one of the dangers. If you engage in this kind of mysticism, you know, you might be led astray by those heresies. As an interesting footnote, there's, uh, you know, we see kind of modern day, Bensi's smiling because he knows where I'm going with this, but <laughs> we see kind of the modern day view of mysticism, the, the Kabbalah of today, kind of leads people to the same, in a way, it could lead people to the same conclusion. Not everybody, but that there are different, uh, yeah. different kind of uh, expressions of the Godhead. And yeah, so Kabbalah, I mean, th that's why I say Kabbalah is different than Hechelot or Merkavah mysticism. Kabbalah understands God in, tens of, in terms of ten wrote. But those, you know, Sfirot also do have these kind of different powers or potencies. So it's not quite the same as dualism or two divine powers, but it's 
Yeah, but, but, but beyond the problems, let's say beyond, yeah, problems. beyond beyond the sphero, there's also the you know there's the atzmud and then there's the einsof and yeah, so, and then, yeah. So, but yeah, you're right. Right, which is for the same reason that it's considered mystical and esoteric and shouldn't be engaged in by by everybody, right? In yeah. any case, so let's go back to our story. So, so, so uh, Alicia says maybe there are two divine powers. So what do they do? They brought out Metatron and they they whipped him with lashes of fire. So this proves to Alicia they're not two divine powers, right? This was the way of convincing him, demonstrating to him that Metatron's just an angel. You know, he's not a god because he can be punished like any subdivine figure. And, and then this line, they said to him, when you saw him, why did you not rise before him? This kind of blames Metatron a little bit. You know, it was also a little bit Metatron's fault because Metatron should have stood up and not let Alicia get the wrong impression. So you, you could have that line or you could not have the line. But, but in any case, Alicia caused Metatron to be punished, you know, to suffer in order to prove that there were not two divine powers because he had articulated that very, very dangerous belief. Now, once Metatron is punished, he was given permission to burn the merits of Acher. So this is kind of a midah connected midah, a measure for measure punishment. Alicia caused Metatron to be punished. So Metatron gets to take revenge and punish Acher. Metatron was struck with lashes of fire. So he gets to burn out Acher's merits in return. And again, that seems to be his function, right? He's the scribe who is writing the merits of Israel. So here he gets to erase or destroy the merits of Acher, of, of Elisha, this, this one Jew, you know. Mm. And once he's done that, Acher, Elisha, loses all reward for mitzvot. Right? He's lost all credit for mitzvot. And therefore what? You know, he can never get to heaven. You know, he's consigned to... You know, whether the rabbis think you're going to go to Gehenna or hell or just to be destroyed, you know, he's not going to get to Olam Haba. And not only that, a heavenly voice went out and said to him, return rebellious children, except Acher. Right? It's a quote from a verse in Yirmiyahu and Jeremiah, Shuvu banim shovavim. Everybody can do tshuva, right? We know all Jews can do tshuva. We're supposed to do tshuva every year on Yom Kippur, every day. And that's how you get rid of sin. But if Alicia can't do shuva, he's stuck. He's got no merits, and he can't do shuva for his sins. So at the end of the day, he's going to be a Russia, and there's no way for him to escape that fate. Yeah. No way for him to get to Alam Haba. He has no incentive to improve because that's right. So the story is going to continue with him doing evil and so on. We'll get to that in a minute. Because after all, he's he's got no you know he's got no option, he's got no reason to be good. He's got no reason to be mitzvot, do mitzvot anymore, because they're all burnt out, and he can't do tshuva. And we'll just look at the next scene of the story because it's important for understanding the Tosefta too, um, and then we'll we'll go back to the Tosefta. So the story of the Babli continues. He said that is Alicia said. Since that man, that is since I, again, the third for the first person, since that man has been banished from that world, I will go and enjoy myself in this world. I've got no way to get to Alam Abba, 
no merits, no ability to do tshuva. So why should I do mitzvot? Why should I be good in this world? I'll go be a hedonist. You know, I might as well. And Acher went out to evil ways, literally evil growth. Tarbut ra'ah. I think it's important it uses this term. It's not the most common term. But why would it be evil growth? Uh, um, going back to the uh, yeah, is this is this part of the shoots? Yeah, so this is going back to the shoots. We'll get okay, so okay. he went out to evil growths, evil ways. In modern Hebrew, the word tabut means culture, but in the in the in rabbinic Hebrew, it means you know it means growth. Um, so he went out to evil growth. He found a certain prostitute. He propositioned her. She said to him, are you not Elisha ben Abuya, whose name went out throughout the world? Aren't you the famous sage, Elisha ben Abuya? Everybody's heard of this great sage. Why are you propositioning me, a prostitute? He uprooted a radish on the Sabbath and gave it to her. Uproot? Are we? Is the uprooting maybe another kind of... Could be. Could be another cutting the shoots. Another cutting the shoots or like a little, yeah, okay. Yep. And then she said, it's another, right? It is Acher. It can't be Elisha ben Abuya because Elisha ben Abuya would not violate Shabbat if you uproot a plant, right? It's a kind right. of gardening. It's it's forbidden on the Sabbath. So he proves to her that uh, that he is not, it's not Elisha. And then she says, oh, it's another Acher. So here we get a kind of ideology and origin of the name Acher. How did he get the name Acher? You know, this prostitute said, oh, you're you're another person. You're not Alicia Benabuya. <coughs> um, so that's that's how he got the sobriquet or the nickname of Acher. So, so, Professor, when you look at this, it's so interesting. We have here two mm. inter interpretations. We have the interpretations of the Yerushalmi. We have the interpretations of the Bavli. Completely yeah. different. Completely different. Like, not them... even, like, there's <laughs> nothing that you can compare them. It's just, it's meaning like completely two different distinct directions. Yeah, you you're right. Um, because neither of them really understood uh, Tosefta. And so they 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 made did the best they could to, to make sense of it. And, you know, they went in certain dir directions. We will see a little later when we do the other po podcast about the Urshami and the Babli, there is something in common between the two. They did have a kind of shared tradition, but but not really in this section, okay? Um, but so you make a, a good observation. You know, it's like two different midrashim, right? You can Completely. interpret a biblical verse. It's so, so it's it's just it's interesting to me that when people want to take these, uh, for what it's worth, historically, it it becomes it, you know, like what do you, so because the Bavli was more popularized, so the Bavli, yeah. the Bavli version kind of got popularized. So then that's what happened, and you know, but if you look in the Yerushalmi, it's it's not at all what happened, but that's okay because it just never gained as much popularity. I mean, yeah. that's really where it's, how it's ended up. And you also mentioned in your, in the previous uh, uh, podcast we did with you about the different girsaot and the, you know, we're not supposed to look at these things historically because you see that each version is trying to teach like a different lesson. You should learn all of them and try to understand right. all trying to tell us. Because, for example, the Bavli will use the backdrop of like a Beit Midrash where it wasn't originally yeah. because that was their their culture. Right. So, so I think that's that's important to point now, out. A hundred percent. In other words, any rabbinic story, rabbinic stories about Rabbi Akiva, rabbinic stories about Rabbi Meir, all those rabbinic traditions, as we explained before, 
are not meant to be historical or biographical. They're closer to what we would call didactic fiction, you know, with the asterisk that fiction, history, biography, and antiquity did not exist in exactly the same way that we conceptualize them today. Correct. But so any rabbinic story, even the ones about rabbinic, you know, should not be understood historically, biographically, but, you know, call the Homer this one, because these ones, we see exactly where they come from. And they come from interpretation of an earlier source. You know, the others, uh, some of the other ones, we don't know exactly where they come from. Sometimes uh, we, do, we can see the Here we the see clearly that there's a Tosefta. Yeah. Here we see clearly there's a Tosefta. And we yeah. see clearly that the Babli and the Yerushalmi are trying to interpret over here. It, exactly. It's clear as day. I understand. So if this there really... is any historical or biographical kernel, it's in the Tosefta. But, you know, even that we should understand is probably a later tradition and meant to tell a lesson about this kind of mystical speculation. You know, even the Tosefta is far removed from the original Elisha. You know, we just have no idea. But certainly, yeah. you know, 100% the Pavli and Yerushalayim. Well, Elisha Ben Abuya is basically the archetype for teaching this. It's a tool to teach a specific lesson about um, apostasy or heresy. Exactly. And actually, we'll see the Babli is going to use it in, really for teaching a different lesson and the Yerushalayim right. for teaching different lessons. But it does exactly become a tool. In the Tosefta, for... right? Benji's words would hold for the Tosefta. Well, it's it, yeah, the Tosefta does teach that there's a danger in mystical speculation, but again, it doesn't tell us really that much about what it right, really tells. But once you get into the Bavli and like what, what comes, like, you know, all the stories that start following, it goes in a completely different direction. It's not even discussing mysticism. It's, it's, it's right. It, it's, it's going to start posing completely yes, different questions. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We'll get to that. Let's just look again. I want to make one thing clear. We'll, we'll get back to that other slide. But so in other words, we can see how the Bavli interprets the Tosefta if you look at these two columns, right? So the Tosefta says, Alicia uh, uh, gazed and cut the shoots. So in the Bavli, what is the gaze? Well, and it says, it opens, what did he see? He saw Metatron. Cut the shoots, as you guys already correctly figured out, the Bavli understands as went out to evil ways or growth, went out to evil growth, and then uprooted the radish. Those are both attempts to interpret the Toseptas cutting the shoots. How did his mouth lead him into sin? He said, perhaps they're two powers, right? He, he, he voiced or articulated this heretical dualistic speculation. So that was a mouth articulating a theological sin, you might say. The angel or malach in the verse is clearly Metatron. You know, we didn't get that in the Yerushalmi. The Bible is doing a better job, if you ask me, of interpreting all the data that it has in the Tosefta. Do not say before the malach that it was an error. I think that's being interpreted as, you know, do not repent. In other words, you, Acher, cannot say, oh, I made a mistake. Let me do tshuva. No, you can't. You can't repent. You know, God being angered in the in the verse is being is Metatron being punished. You know, he was angry at Metatron. Or I guess you could say angry at Elisha too. By his talk, again, the talk is the mouth leading him into sin. Perhaps there are two powers, and destroy the work of your hands. As we said, Maseya Decha, Maseya Dav, work of your hands, often refers to mitzvot or the merit of mitzvot. So how did the work of Elisha's hands get destroyed, his merits, his suyot, the mitzvot he did, 
were destroyed by Metatron. So almost everything in the Tosefta and the verse from Kohelet that is quoted gets interpreted in the Bavli to create this kind of scenario. The Bavli really does a great job here, I have to say. May, may, I, may I say, but you, you, you're mentioning that the Bavli does a better job. I'm wondering mm -hmm. if, see, there's an intuitive notion over here with the Bavli because it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's talking more to the point of the, of the Tosefta, which is the mystical experience, which is, right, right that, that, I think that's why you're saying it's doing yes. a better job. Yeah. So well, better job because it's 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 consistent with that mystical background, well, it's, and it's, also because yeah, it it takes into account more of the verse and the Tosefta. Right, right. The Yerushalmi, what it did with the verse is really out there. I hear you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Yerushalmi took into account parts of the verse, but we'll look at that in a minute. But dropped, but dropped the stuff about Metatron or an angel. No angel appeared in the Yerushalmi. So I'm wondering if the if the, because in general, as a whole, the Yerushalmi tends to be, um, again, pun intended, I guess, but sort of uh, demystified as opposed to the Bavli. The Yerushalmi doesn't talk about demons much. The Yerushalmi doesn't. The Yerushalmi doesn't seem interested so much in you know mystical speculation as much as the Bavli, which which you'll see a lot of shadim, you'll see a lot of angels. So I'm wondering if uh, kind of like the character of, of the Babylonian, of the Bavli, and the character of the Yerushalmi contributed to their way of interpreting. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, it's very possible. Um, I think this notion that the Yerushalmi doesn't have as many angels and demons as the Bavli might be a little exaggerated. There's definitely less in the Yerushalmi, but the Yerushalmi is a shorter text. Um, you know, this, this, I think this goes back to the scholar Lewis Ginsburg, who was trying in a famous essay, was trying to explain differences between the Bavli and Yerushalmi. There are a lot of demons that appear in the Yerushalmi. Maybe they're more in the Bavli because Babylonia, you know, in Zoroastrianism and Persian Iranian culture, they, they thought more about demons. But there's definitely in the Yerushalmi. Everybody in antiquity believed in demons and angels. Right. Um, it might Fair. be there's less of the mystical speculation in the Bab in the Yerushalmi. It might be the Bavli continued the Hechalot traditions a little more, although I think we have texts from Eretz Israel about them. So it, it's possible what you're saying is true. I'm, I'm I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. Fair, fair. It could be I'm wrong. I, I'm not no expert yeah. in Yerushalmi. Yeah, I mean, no, I've, you could I've be heard right. these ideas floating around, so I was kind of just yeah. bringing it out. But you're yeah. much more familiar than me. I'll take your word for it. Yeah. And uh, one thing that's standing out to me, obviously, is like it's really jumping out at me is the whole prostitute narrative. Yeah. Because well, again, that that that, that prostitute narrative is uh, prostitute na narrative is funny because um, there might even be a kind of comical element in it. But it's the Bobley's understanding of what someone would do who's got no motivation to be a good person. Why would you not just try to enjoy yourself, pleasure yourself, eating, drinking? Why would you observe mitzvot? Why would you observe the sexual prohibitions? So the Bobby, you know, kind of almost logically, I mean, there's some, you know, there's some kind of reason to this. You know, if you if you think there's no nothing to work for, you've got no chance of getting any sort of heavenly reward. So yeah, you might you might go out and 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 be ahead in this. So one one interesting observation is that, you know, in the ancient world, especially, prostitutes were 
kind of like it, this shows that prostitutes actually knew stuff. Like here, she's even she knows like halakha. She knows who <laughs> she knows who Elisha ben Abuya is. Why? Because because people would who would go visit prostitutes, they they would talk, they would speak to them, they would tell them stuff. Yeah, uh, I think you're being a little more his, a little too historical. Then. <laughs> <laughs> I think but, this but, is this is the Bavli imagining a kind of prostitute who's knowledgeable about Jewish law. But again, it's for the purpose. It, of no, the it's story. it's 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 just funny that he he. It's yeah. interesting that he goes to a prostitute and is having this conversation. Like he yeah. to a prostitute, he propositioned her. Like yeah, does he have to do with anything? It's strange. Yeah. Well, he propositioned her is the typical Bobbly phrase for what you say to a prostitute, you know, it's like, uh, but, um, uh, but yeah, the, but the whole scene is really to, prov to provide the explanation of, of, of uh, cutting the shoots, uprooting the radish, and then getting the name Acher, because the prostitute thinks it's the other. Right. Also it's a segue to the name. It shows what kind of company he's keeping, meaning that's how far down he's gone, that he's with a Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. I want to do. I want to do one other thing here. You're going to have to um, reorder the uh, uh, cut and paste. Is that okay in your editing? It's okay. Yeah, because I I forgot to do this with the Yerushalmi. So um, we can even go back. It doesn't have to be cut and paste. We'll just keep this in. It's fine. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. So here again. Um, so let's pretend. You know, we're we're we're. We're just oh, dealing with the Yerushalmi. So, so let, let's just review the Yerushalmi and illustrate how the Yerushalmi understands the Tosefta mm. and the verse that it quotes. So, again, this is to make clear just how the Yerushalmi is interpreting Tosefta. Where the Tosefta says gaze, the Yerushalmi says he would kill every student who he saw, distinguish mm. himself in Torah. Mm. Cutting the shoots, the Yerushalmi understands as killing the young students of Torah. I should also say also cutting uh, cutting them off from Torah, that is telling them to abandon the Torah. Letting your mouth lead you into sin is in that third story, uh, in the second story where he says, you know, what are they doing here? The students should go away. And in the third story, it's where he tells the persecutors, make them carry individually to violate Shabbat, not two at a time, or make them carry flasks, which they can't set down. Now, it doesn't seem that the Yerushalmi interprets those other parts of the verse. I mean, that's okay. The Yerushalmi could have thought it was only the first part of the verse that was relevant, or the first and the last part. Um, and then, God may be angered by your talk, as above, that's him saying, you know, saying those things. Um, uh, I forgot the last line there, and destroy the work of your hands. You know, as we said, destroying the work of your hands was destroying the mitzvot that the Jews were doing and possibly dest destroying the children. So again, this I think makes clear again, you know, just in a more tabular form that Yerushalmi is really interpreting the Tosefta along different lines and doesn't really have independent traditions about what Elisha did. Fantastic. Yeah, so you could you could splice that in and edit it, or I guess you could leave it at the end, or you could just omit it if you don't think it's helpful at all. Oh, it's definitely helpful. I don't think we need a I don't think it needs to be edited. I think we could just yeah. leave it as is because it's okay. part of the show anyway. All so, right. so, so you can see, you know, but really both, like you said, both stories go in different ways, but they both really go back to the SEPTA. And then what we'll what we'll do in subsequent uh, in subsequent podcasts, subsequent you know uh, recordings, is in one we'll have to do the Urshami because it's a very long story. You know, it'll take a while, 
And then in a separate one, the Bavli, and then, you know, we could even think about a third one about other traditions. But, you know, much of it goes back to um, the Tosefta in the verse that gets spun out, you know, midrashically almost in different ways to generate these different pseudo-biographical traditions about uh, what Elisha did. And we're going to get into the motivations um, behind the way the Bavli and the Yerushalmi characterize um, Acher, right? That's going to be part of it. Yeah, we'll get into what the Bavli and Yerushalmi want to want to explore, want to teach through the figure of of Asher. I think of Acher. I think they, you know, they go in different directions, but they use it for their own purposes because, you know, like you said, they weren't so interested in this mystical speculation anymore. Or if they were, they weren't, you know, they weren't generating traditions for the Talmuds that really went into that in detail. They thought that should be esoteric. They thought that should be secret. And, and therefore, when they had these sources in Tosefta, which they had interpreted initially in those ways that we saw today, they then took it to work out different things that they were interested in. And they thought that their audience of rabbis and students would be interested in. And, I'm, and I'm that's what we're going to get into eventually. Yeah. Eventually, yeah. I'm I'm yeah. very interested in the uh, student aspect, which is Rabbi Meir, who you know he stays loyal to his teacher even after his apostasy, and he kind of never gives up on him, and he still learns from him, and he and and then like Acher is just trying to push him away. He doesn't want him, so I find that to be interesting because cutting off the shoots doesn't really apply to Rabbi Meir. Uh, so I find that very fascinating. Right. Well, again. Um... Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, in the Bavli, remember, it didn't take cut the shoots in terms of um, killing students or cutting them off from Torah. Yep. Rabbi Meir in the Bavli, but you're right. In the Yerushalmi, <laughs> it did take it that way, and you do have traditions of him and Rabbi Meir in the Yerushalmi too. So it didn't didn't take it that far. Yes, that's true. So we're really looking forward to it for all of our listeners. You know, this is a a lot to cover. It's a subject that requires hours and we can't just put it all in one podcast, but we're looking forward to this series on Alicia Ben Abuya. It's such a fascinating topic. And we want to thank you, Professor, for coming on again. We really enjoyed talking to you as usual and uh, looking forward to the next podcast. All right. Great pleasure. We'll we'll do it when we can. I Good feel night. like I just left the sheer right now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. This is incredible. Yeah, my pleasure. Bye. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash judaism pretty easy to remember thank you again and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys before we go we want to thank our patreon supporters by name those are the supporters that are helping make this show happen because Frankly, Bensi and I are full-time workers who don't really have so much time on our hands because we have families, we have kids, and it's just a passion project that got way bigger than we expected. So we're dedicating more time to this, and obviously our production value up until this point hasn't been great, 
considering that we filmed this in Bensi's basement using a green screen and a crappy little microphone and not such great equipment, to be honest. I'm sure you all realize that. So we are hoping to up our quality and get better equipment. And part of that process is going to be due to you guys, the listeners and supporters. If you go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Judaism, you will see all the different tiers of ways you can help us out. So first of all, we want to thank our super patron, Jordan Carmilli, our platinum patron, Craig Gordon, our gold patrons, David Chay Abramchayev, Laser Cohen, Travis Kruger, Vasily Volkov, silver patrons, Ellen Fleischer, Daniel Maksumov, Rabbi Penny Rosenthal, and Jeffrey Wasserman. Thank you all for supporting the show, and we hope you guys enjoy. Thank you.